is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. In Catholic, I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother in Oklahoma City. I got into an argument the other day that surprised me. Now, I used to love to argue with people. It was a fun pastime, having people lay out their thoughts like tin pins, being specific and careful with their precious possessions was all part of the fun. And then throwing down my facts and reasons like two bowling balls in a row, it was all fantastic. Since this most often happened at parties, nobody made that much of it. By the time the night was over, almost everybody was in a good mood. If there had been any barbed words, they were usually forgotten, and we all went on our way. It was kind of entertainment. In the biography of C.S. Lewis, the author described Lewis as the kind of guy who reveled in this sort of thing. As a professor, he lived for disputation and clarification. His vacations would be to spend the day walking with one of his colleagues, chewing over a topic as they trampled their way through the English countryside, spotlighting one idea after another. It doesn't sound quite as stimulating as, say, a cruise or a day at the beach, but for him, it was real recreation. He lived for that kind of approach to life. But I'm not that much so stimulated by such things anymore. Partly, it's because disputation doesn't win many friends. Or I should say more accurately, the best disputation happens only among friends. And if you talk with a stranger and score your rhetorical points, They're not likely to spend more time with you or admire your thought process. In fact, if you're especially good at it, they're likely to feel humiliated or dominated. That might not be quite fair to the process. After all, you're just thinking out loud. But in our day and time, and I think it's been true in every day and time, people take what they say and what they, and what's said to them with serious, a lot of seriousness to hear Hard and sharp words directed at what they most firmly possess isn't pleasant. Contestation is best among friends. Those who know one another hear something besides harsh judgment and general criticism when all the words are flying about. Being among strangers is not congenial to dissecting another's thoughts. And besides, in all these years that I've gone about these things, I've never won a single person to my side. Nobody has ever heard one of my convincing ironclad arguments and then said, Well, I believe you're right. I'm going to change my way of thinking. And since we so often talk about religion, I have to admit, I've never converted anyone because I talk them into anything. Certainly no one I know of has come to believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ because I devastated their false way of thinking. I know this is true because I know how I feel when somebody gets the best of me in such an argument. I'm not grateful for their superior take on a subject or their greater range of knowledge. And certainly, I don't feel more open or feel enlightened by what I've heard. If my arguments are shot down, I'm more likely to be angry and resentful, more than relieved or educated. Having had my words and ideas slashed, it's much less fun to bring the sword down over another's pleading and reasoning. Why visit on another what I myself do not savor? But of course, we shouldn't mistake the badinage flowing back and forth at parties as some version of Socrates at the Forum. Most of the time, it's just fun. And like a lot of different versions of fun, we make way for those who are not always good at it. We have patience with those who are a little too enthusiastic. And above all, 
we remember that we're at a party in which we don't have to be serious about everything. In those moments in which life is greater than the everyday, we can afford to be something other than our everyday careful selves. And this is true, especially when we're talking to each other. Maybe it's especially, most especially true then. I was at a party the other day in which all of my collected wisdom went flying out the window. I got tied up in a conversation with a young graduate in which the words ended flying about the room and the passions they triggered erupted over the both of us. What was I thinking? I suppose it had something to do with the day being over, the Chardonnay being cold, and the atmosphere being congenial. That is to say, it was just one of those moments. It's true, it was a party, and I did forget myself. As in other times at parties, this forgetfulness led to some regrets. So chalk it up to immoderation. Anyway, it went something like this. I was chatting with a young woman who had just finished her master's degree. I asked what she was doing now that she's out of school, and she told me, but then explained it. what she was doing was only temporary. What she really wants to do is to be involved in transforming society so that it becomes more congenial to what should be happening. And when I pressed her about this, she told me that she'd like to make, she'd like to be a part of making the world fossil fuel free by 2030. That's when the lights in my imagination went on. A big mistake. In my sober judgment now, I realized my first miscalculation, and that was in the numbers that we were using. Because in a few years, I'll be 70. For me, seven years is the blink of an eye. I can remember seven years ago, 2016, like it was yesterday. And I can marvel at how quickly all those intervening segments have slipped away. In fact, I can remember 1976 and can wonder at the flash of time that it's been since all of those most important days of my life have passed. But it's not so for her. Seven years for her are like an infinity of time and space. For her to look back and measure, it might be three lifetimes. So pressing ahead to a sterling goal so far ahead, so dimly registering in the imagination, seven years, is the same as saying, once upon a time in a land far away, at least for her. Those years just mean the future for her and nothing more. So everything I said after that was like trying to talk about Snow White's dress or Winnie the Pooh's honey jar. It just missed the point because I'd forgotten what the story meant for her. But I jumped in anyway. As I said, the Chardonnay was cold and the night was young. So I said, ending fossil fuels in seven years will guarantee the death of four billion people through starvation. And I carried on from there trying to make my point about how much we depend on the intricate and thorough infrastructure of fossil fuels built up over the last 130 years at the cost of trillions of dollars. Waving our hand and deciding such thing this, such, this thing is obsolete and harmful, won't have it go away, and it certainly won't create a substitute. Which was my point. I know it's hardly free-flowing party talk, but at the moment, it seemed important to me to let this young person know that her ideas might have consequences beyond what she intends. At the same time, I knew her quest to end fossil fuels was about as likely as developing warp drive and making our way through the cosmos on a starship. When I got out of college, I was comfortable in my knowledge and understanding of just about everything. I graduated in uh, philosophy from seminary college, but the guys in the seminary are usually above average in intelligence and are usually well-read and well-spoken. 
At that time, I was comfortable in having read the books that we read and talked about what we talked about. So in the course of things, I considered myself informed and in touch. I think all of us in school at that time did. At least the guys I hung around with did. So I know exactly what it's like to repeat the things you hear in school with strangers. They're the things you've tried out with your friends and have talked about over and over until you know you're right and have no concern about how wrong those others might be. I also know what it's like to say these things at parties and have the elders there let them slide off with scarcely a a shrug. After all, you're just a young guy talking like you talk to the other young guys. Other, more serious things can wait until you get a little more experience and a bit more wisdom. It's a matter of seasoning. As Oscar Wilde said in the same vein, I'm not young enough to know everything. I was once, and I can say I depended upon the patience of most of my elders for a very long time when I was young and vain and knew everything. Our conversation with this young woman went on for a few minutes like that. She spoke of her plans, and I injected a note of caution. I I just wanted her to see reason. I couldn't hear myself poking holes in all of the plans that she holds so close and looks at so admiringly. How could she not have heard my words as an attack on her and her ideals? Or maybe they were a criticism of her whole sense of identity and purpose. Words have the power to make and to unmake people. So I think mine did. To my credit, we didn't start talking politics. I learned some time ago that unless you're with those you know well, unless you want to watch a volcano erupt next to you, you don't mention the political. And even when you're with those you know, you know there are those topics not to be brought up unless you want to hear what you don't believe or what you know to be false spewing out of the mouths of those whom you love. So I remain sober and alert in this conversation. No political parties, personalities, or policies specifically were mentioned. Several years ago in my sabbatical, one of my cousins had called me when I was in Rome to tell me her son would be in town and wanted to have supper with me. He eventually did call me, and we set up a time to meet in the middle of St. Peter's Square, and we went to supper together. Now, he's a consultant to political campaigns around the country, and I dreaded the possibility of listening to him go on and on for hours about all of the issues of the day. He's congenial enough, but the politics can become wearying. As we sat down, the first thing he said was, No politics. That's work. And I don't want to talk about work. I'm on vacation. It was a delightful evening. Again, as Oscar Wilde said, the difficult part of running the world is that it takes up so many of your evenings. We decided not to run the world, and our evening was delightful. But with my interlocutor from a few weeks ago, we did talk policies and and it was a real downer. At the end of what turned out to be the first phase of the conversation, I mentioned the book that we were reading when I went to college 50 years ago. It was The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich. It seemed to be reasonable reasonable and well thought out. His thesis was simple. There's only so much food we can raise, and if the population becomes too large, people will begin to starve. As they do, social cohesion will break down and all we know will become undone. Everybody, all those 50 years ago, discussed it seriously and appreciated its suggestions and its fundamental ideas. Of course, we were just in college. It was just one more set of ideas competing with other sets. And we all mostly went on with our lives in the way we knew how. It didn't have all that much effect on us. Except I heard the ideas used as the justification for all kinds of decisions. It was the reason many of my friends justified not having children. In some settings, I heard these ideas proposed as a reason not to build for the future 
since we were so certain we wouldn't have one. Some countries even used this book as a reason to control the fertility of their people and to limit the number of children. It was just a book, but it had enormous influence. As the years have gone by, we've found out that it was spectacularly wrong in every aspect. The world's population since that book was published has just about doubled in that time, and there's no starvation except in the places that it is politically and militarily helpful to make starvation happen. All of the predictions in the book were not just wrong, but the opposite of every notion of what constitutes truth. And yet the ideas remain simmering in our consciousness, waiting to spew out from under the boiling lid of our thoughts. I mentioned this to my conversation partner just as a reminder of the fragility of what everybody knows to be true. Again, this was obvious to me. I'd lived through it. For her, it was an attack on everything she'd stood for and stood on. And so by then, she'd had enough. And she went on the attack. It was like a switch was thrown. She unloaded. I guess she figured it was time to establish her bona fides and have have me take her seriously, which in her thinking, I obviously had not been doing. That was her miscalculation. I offered all of those objections precisely because I was taking her seriously, something you really shouldn't do at a party. She would misread the exchange between us. But whatever the source of her conviction, it was real conviction and she acted. So she pulled off her gloves and decided to go bare knuckles. It was no more Miss Cutie Pie with her. As a segue from the mention of people starving and my criticism of Ehrlich's book, she said, you don't care at all about children once they're born. Mothers struggle with their kids and you don't do anything. All you care about is controlling women's bodies while they're pregnant. After that, you don't care about kids at all. Wow. It was full beast mode in a moment. And she went on from there for about 15 minutes with hardly a pause. And the criticisms included not having women priests, the church incomprehension of gay and transgender people, the fact there is no distinction between men and women, and anyone claiming there is is hateful and prejudiced, and the fact that God does not exist. There's quite a lot of issues to put into a few minutes. And in a way, I wanted to laugh. There were a few things she said that I corrected her uh, about in mid-rant which is also not a winning strategy, but I couldn't help it. In her first statement, she challenged me that I only cared about a child when it was in the mother's stomach. And I mentioned that there had never been a child in a mother's stomach ever. But of course, that didn't slow her down. I also pointed out that if there is no distinction between men and women, the church would be perfectly justified in ordaining only men, since there'd be no possible loss or problem in doing so. You can't claim both things, discrimination against women and no distinction between men and women at the same time. But such fine logical distinctions are not sought out by the one compelled to spew. Such corrections didn't go over so well. In fact, you come across as picayune and finicky rather than as serious. After all, she was making big points and she also didn't want to be interrupted. My next really big mistake was to begin to get my dander up. I felt insulted when she challenged my belief in God. You only believe because someone told you, she said. I was supposed to honor her groundbreaking understanding that because she'd thought about it and had rejected God, my position was obviously false. I felt her words right to the core, but I sloughed it off. She only wanted to insult, not to reason. And the only reason she said that was so that I would be insulted. 
I'm happy to say I didn't take the bait. The next thing was that the church hates children and the vulnerable. If the church didn't, it'd be feeding children and educating them rather than building shrines. I didn't bring up the history of Catholic education, orphanages, adoption agencies, hospices, hospitals, leprosariums, St. Vincent de Paul Society, or the billions spent by Catholic charities every year. Let's say her mood wasn't inclined toward listening. In fact, I kept thinking of a series of quotes by a rabbi published in First Things from a couple of years ago. He was talking about demons. We think of demons as these mythical little devils flying around to perch on your shoulder and whisper in your ear. In this picture, they're silly encumbrances from the time gone by, and they all deserve the scorn we can heap on them. But if we imagine them to be the invisible powers of this world that get a hold of us, then, of course, they're all around us. That's what I was thinking as I watched her face transform into a twisted version of itself and she into this talking statue on the attack. Here's what the rabbi wrote in that article. Quote, the demon you need to watch out for is never your enemy. Your demon is always something you agree with, unquote. What she agreed with had taken her over. I kept thinking as she was talking, she was revealing the power at work in herself, not herself, as if she were letting me know her deepest recesses. She wasn't conversing. What she was doing was rehearsing. The rabbi also reminded, quote, it may, this may be especially the truth for intellectuals. Opinions aren't really the result of a careful examination of the facts or even a question of personal conscience. Instead, they're mostly determined by whatever other opinions are floating around in your vicinity. Wherever you are, there's a demon at your hand, unquote. Being demon-possessed is when everyone repeats what no one believes. So true, and a reminder to all of us, not just young people newly out of graduate school. Eventually, she ran out of steam. I stumbled over a few answers, and she turned to leave. It had been a pretty unpleasant 15 minutes or so for both of us, and my blood was up a bit. It wasn't quite the same as if I'd been 21 and was ready to pounce, but I wasn't going to simply let her go. Alas, my thoughts were not on conversion or acceptance. I had moved away from patience and had let go of any concern for fitting the gospel into the moment. To tell the truth, I was possessed by my own demon of the moment. I couldn't let things go and just go back home. So I said, as she walked away, try not to kill too many people as you make the world better. 62 million children killed over the last 50 years is enough. She put up her hands and turned away. And thus, one more time, I allowed my need to be right, to make sure the right things were said, to stand in the way of a moment in which I might have been able to proclaim a word of joy or at least a word of hope. Don't get me wrong. The truth needs to be defended and the falsity of the world has to be defeated before it causes untold death and destruction. And this has to be done by all of us as often and as completely as possible. We should never stop telling the truth, no matter how hard it is to hear. But this was, this was a party, and I'm the responsible one. I had the power to steer her enthusiasms to the goodness of life and to the joy of creation, if I had just been more aware. 
Sure, she has these opinions and they do shape her life and they are ultimately destructive, but if I had been aware of what would happen as I challenged her, I would have opted for a different tactic. After all, I know she didn't walk away from her time with me more deeply aware of the love of God or convinced of the depths of God's forgiveness. And communicating those things is my job, after all. I am to proclaim the gospel always, not just at the pulpit and not just on paper, but even at parties. And I didn't. But we all live life face first. We only crash into what's around us by hitting it first with our nose. And there's no other way. I didn't know I was turning up the heat on a pressure cooker. I had to find out by doing it. Plus, it had been a while since I'd had a conversation with someone her age and her disposition, and I was unprepared. And being so was my fault entirely. I can't afford to remain unprepared. If I'm going to do my job, I have to do some serious thinking about how to engage all those like her in a way that they can hear. Sure, there's a little part of me happy that she became so angry. I admit it. Getting under her skin has its schadenfreude moment. But we weren't just playing, and the words weren't just party talk. They matter. I have to make sure my words matter in a way that makes a positive, real difference. What I was unable to do was to witness to her. Pope Francis has reinforced the conviction that it is the witness of our lives that convinces, not winning arguments or hammering bad syllogisms. I know it's true. In fact, I felt it when she was talking. Her conviction is that God is absent. According to her, I believe only because others have told me so. But I surrendered my future and my passions to the will of God almost 50 years ago, when I went to the seminary. I can witness to the truth that God does exist, and not only exists, but moves and calls and accompanies. My fault was that I wasn't able to find a way to say that to her. The accusations and insinuations were dripping out of her mouth too quickly to find a way to what I should have said, and I was at fault. And I didn't have enough charity. I could have begun with the charity so many have shown me in my life, but I didn't. It's life, face first. Now I know. I endeavor to do better. Maybe there'll be a time, a Chestertonian moment, in which the hammered truth might have its effect on the mind and imagination of the willing interlocutor. And I pray I'll have the words then. For now, for me, it's repentance and charity with a bit of gratitude thrown in. That is to say, it's life as normal for those like me who seem always to be learning how to live this Christian life. Back in just a moment. our final segment, Faith in Verse, we have a poem today called Christ is the Curriculum. Christ is the curriculum, it is said, as the way to the fullness of the kingdom. For truth is the incarnation of the head, the wholeness of the divine lived in some. And we have no access to this light unless we can look up once to see where the glow shines through bright, revealing the sublimely perfect he. How often do we truly know at once our God, Resident in nature's beauty, we look, but our short-sighted gaze blunts the honest view in hearing in our love and duty. For we do not just absorb every fact as sponges soak up all liquid about. Instead, we know at best we interact to exclude 
the filtered product of dearth and doubt. Truths do not lie about as scattered stones here and there to cause to stumble and pause, but are rather the substrate, the hidden bones that stiffen the whisper of effect and cause, and retain what is strained and distilled, rich nuggets precipitated all whole, from the rushing river current filled with all muddy clouds of life it holds. We trust the person of Christ, he with us, that we are blessed with his revelation, all his life and hope, our great plus, which we live at our own elevation. That is, Christ is the curriculum. And living it, that's what we are after here at Living Catholic. After all, it's the truth of life, the truth of the faith, and the truth of our vision. That's what we're here for. Hope in the time to come, you can join us. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.